Well, it is good to be with you guys this morning. It's been a little while since I've been over here, and I'm excited to get to share God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, if you want to find that in the Word this morning. We're going to read several uh, parts of that passage, beginning in verse 16 here in just a minute. But I just want to go back and talk about, just for a second, a little bit about what last week's message uh, showed us. Last week's message from verses 8 to 15 is so rich, so full of doctrinal truths. And uh, Pastor Andrew did a great job last week of just communicating uh, really those truths to us. And I want to kind of go back and hit those for just a minute this morning as, as kind of a review, whether you were here or not. Because Colossians, I hope you're finding that Colossians is such a rich study. There's so much good stuff in Colossians that all of us need to know. And hopefully this morning, you're going to gain some new insights, make some new discoveries. But if you were to summarize sort of the message of Colossians, it's this, that Christ is supreme. You don't need Christ plus other things. That was the heresy that was floating around in the Colossian church was basically Jesus is fine, but you need Jesus plus. And we know that that's not true. There is no substitute for Jesus. And we're going to see that this morning in the passage that we're going to read together. Really what Paul's saying in this, in this message to the church at Colossians, the Colossian church, is that really Jesus is not just a part of your life. Jesus should be your way of life. He's not just something you add on to your life and continue to live it the way you were already living it. But when Jesus comes into your life, he changes everything about the way that you live, the way that you think, and the way that you work. And so I hope you know the difference this morning between Jesus being a part of your life and being your way of life. So this morning, um, what I want to do is just go back and review briefly just some things. We, Jesus is, has done so much for us. We talked about last week all that he's done for us on the cross, that he was cut off for us through circumcision so that we might be cut off for him, that he received our curse for our sinfulness, that we might receive his blessing for his obedience, that Jesus, it says, canceled our certificate of debt that was against us, that he totally has forgiven us, that he nailed that to the cross, and it doesn't remain against us any longer. But our debt has been paid in full through what Jesus did on the cross. And then Paul says in those verses last week that Jesus triumphed. He was a, he was a victor. He came in a victor's parade to triumph over those who had uh, formerly had authority over us. And so he goes on to talk about that Jesus embodies the full nature of God, that Jesus is above every ruler and authority in the world, and that he has filled us with himself. So because of all those things, we come to see this warning in verse 8 that he gives last week that basically says this, Be careful that no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. So what he's going to continue to do this morning in this passage, beginning in verse 16, is continue in the same vein of thought of this warning. And so he's going to warn us against three substitutes or three things that tend to be in some people's hearts and minds a substitute for Jesus when there is no substitute for Jesus. And so what Paul says because of this, he says basically, therefore. And you know that anytime there's a therefore in the scripture, you should ask yourself, what's the therefore? Therefore. It's a connecting word. It adds one idea. It, it, it follows the former idea and says because this, these things are true, therefore these things are true, or these things are to be paid attention to. So he gives three imperatives, really literally three commands in the passage that we're going to read together this morning, three things that we should stop doing or not allow to happen in our lives. That's what he's telling the church, the Colossian church. And so because there's no substitute for Jesus, 
First of all, what we see in verses 16 and 17 is basically that we should not be intimidated by legalism. Think about that for a minute. He's saying to the Colossian church, don't be intimidated by legalism. This is what he says. Therefore, since all these things are true about Christ, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come, but the substance is Christ. Now, the word here, don't let anyone judge you, that word judge literally means to pronounce a judgment on you. And what he's saying is, if you've ever been in a courtroom and you've, seen, you've been there with a judge, you know that the judge has supreme authority in that courtroom. He can tell the attorneys what they can and can't do. He understands the law, and he's there to make sure that the law is carried out. But he does exercise authority over people in the courtroom. I was, when I was very first in ministry, I, I was trying to help a student of mine who had gotten himself in quite a bit of trouble. And I had told him about how to get free legal services. And Anyway, so the day that he was going to have his trial... I went to the trial, was there in the courtroom, and this young man stood up and basically didn't, didn't get himself any legal representation, and so he, the judge was pretty upset with him, <laughs> and he had time to do this. So the judge called him forward. When he gets up to the judge, he says, well, my youth minister, Paul Coleman, told me, and I'm sitting there going, uh-oh, wait a minute, <laughs> he told me that I could get legal representation if I called this certain phone number, and he goes, who told you that? The judge says, who told you that? He goes, my youth minister, he's sitting right back there. He goes, would you stand up? I stood up. He said, would you come forward? I thought, what did I do? I, I, I don't even know what we're doing here. And I was a little intimidated by the fact that this judge was calling me up. And I said, well, I just told him about East Texas legal services, and I was trying to get him some blah, blah, blah. So the point is, when you stand before that judge, it is an intimidating experience. And what Paul's saying is, because of Judaism and because of its massive influence on the people of that day, he's saying it would be easy for you as Colossians who have trusted Christ as your Savior, but also live in this culture where Judaism is so strong to be intimidated by the legalism of Judaism and to possibly feel like maybe you need Jesus plus Judaism. That's not a crazy idea because we know that even in the book of Acts, in Acts 15, that was a controversy that was going on in the New Testament church that Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch and they were sharing the Lord with those Christian people and loving them and discipling people and sharing the gospel. And these men came into their church and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you guys aren't doing this right. Yeah, Jesus is fine, but you also need to tell these folks that you're sharing the gospel with that they need to keep the law too. In other words, they need to be Jews. They need to be Jesus people and Jewish. They're adding something to Christ. And the Bible says in Acts 15 that no small uh, argument happened between Paul and Barnabas and those men who were called Judaizers who were seeking to cause these people to follow the law in order to know Christ and to know salvation. And uh, what we see is that Paul and Barnabas ultimately decided, the church decided to send them back to Jerusalem and to meet with the elders, Peter and James and the other elders of the church in Jerusalem and to make a decision about what they were going to do about this problem of people seeking to enforce the law, the Jewish law, on people who were believers in Jesus Christ. And this is what Peter said in Acts 15. He said, Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? He's talking about keeping the law. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. So, what the church came to the conclusion of was basically 
Jesus is enough. There's no substitute for Jesus. And so you don't need Jesus plus Judaism. You don't need Jesus plus legalism. So stop letting someone act as your judge. You have. You have the highest judge in the universe. His name is Jesus Christ. He's your Savior. So you don't need to fall prey to the judgment of someone who's under his authority. And that's what Paul says in those verses we looked at last week, that he's over every ruler and authority. We talk about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It starts in verse 18 where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, there's another therefore. Since that's true, you can go into every nation and baptize them and teach them and share the gospel with them because I'm over every other ruler and authority in the universe. And so because that's true, you no longer have to submit to the legalism of Judaism. Paul says here that these things, food and drink and the new moon, which is how the Jewish people kept up with the calendar. It was a lunar system. They didn't have written calendars like we do. They used the moon to determine whether or not it was time for the sacrifices that were called for in the Old Testament on a new moon. So there are all these things that the Jewish people were required to do in the Old Testament, foods they couldn't eat, things they couldn't do, days they were supposed to worship certain ways. And all these laws were not bad things, but Paul says these things were the shadow. They weren't the substance. So you know how that is. I'm casting a shadow right now. If you looked at my shadow on the stage right now, you would think that I was 10 feet tall. My shadow is not always an accurate representation of who I am. And the same thing is true for you. But the, the shadow is not the thing. If you have a relationship with my shadow, you don't necessarily have a relationship with me. What, what Paul's saying is all these things in the Old Testament, these laws, these Jewish laws were the shadow. But the substance, the real thing, is Jesus Christ. And they were pointing to what was to come. The sacrificial system that the Jewish people were commanded to follow, pointed to the fact that one day there would be a perfect sacrifice for them, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so Paul knew that, that Judaism had a huge influence in that day, as it still does today. Several years ago, I got to go to Israel, and we traveled around the country. The last part, four, three or four days of the trip, we were in Jerusalem. And as we came into Jerusalem, we were checking into our hotel there, and there was a man who worked for the travel agency that we were working with. His name was Abraham had an English accent, and I began to talk to Abraham, and he told me that he was a believer in Jesus Christ, and we talked for about two or three hours that night, and he told me that he and his wife had moved from England to uh, Israel to live in Jerusalem. As Jewish people, they wanted to return to Jerusalem, which is sort of the ideal thing for all Jewish people to come back to the promised land and live in, in Israel. And so several years before this, they had moved back to Israel. He was a believer in Jesus Christ, a completed Jew. And he told me that often that they would invite Jewish people in their neighborhood into their home and break bread with them. And he said, the question we always ask is this, have you trusted in the Messiah, Jesus, yet? And he said many people, many people that they'd invited into their home had said, yes, we have done that privately, secretly, but not openly. Why? Because if they had confessed him openly, they'd lose their families in some cases. They'd lose their businesses in some cases. And so there was an intimidating force with Jewish legalism that came into their lives that even though they realized they needed Jesus, they were afraid of what the Judaizers, the people who were the legalists, might come along and put upon them, the consequences that there might be if they didn't follow Judaism as well. You see, legalism is no substitute for Jesus. 
And we see a lot of forms of legalism even in our day and time, don't we? I'll tell you a story from my past. When I was a, a new believer, I, uh, I did something that was a conviction of mine at the time. I, I went and took all of my eight tracks. Don't, don't judge. Okay, that's what we had at the time. All my eight tracks that were secular, Boston, Journey, you know, all those. I took all of them about a month after I got saved and I destroyed them. And for a period of several years, I did not listen to any secular music at all. It was a conviction of mine. I just associated that with my old way of life, and so I had done away with that. So for a couple of years, I listened to the most awful Christian music that there was, because there was no equivalent in the Christian world, at least in my experience, to Journey in Boston and those bands that I like to listen to, right? So I won't even name the, 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 the Christian groups that I was listening to, because I don't want to hate on anybody this morning, okay? But it was not the equivalent, okay? <laughs> And then one day, I get this, this thing comes on the, um, well, I found, about, I actually found out about it at school. I was a senior in high school, and I found out about this concert they were going to have over in Tyler in Caldwell Auditorium. And it was the resurrection band, and the, and the thing underneath it was like music to raise the dead by, you know. And I was like, what, is, what in the world? I've never heard of the resurrection band. So uh, I went, I went and, and the place was full. And so for like an hour and a half, these guys come out, and they're, long hair, and they got electric guitars, and you know, the whole nine yards, and they're just thrashing on these guitars, and the guy puts his guitar down, and he's just sweaty, and he's just been pouring it all out. I mean, this place is full of kids, and he gets up, and for like 30 minutes, he just preaches the gospel. I mean, just as hard as he played that guitar, he preached. I mean, it was powerful, and at that time in my life, I was experiencing a lot of doubt, and so I didn't I wasn't sure if I was saved or not. I just didn't understand the gospel. I didn't really understand how it all worked. And so I had a lot of doubt. I was intimidated by a lot of things. And, and so they did an altar call. He said, if you want to receive Jesus as your Savior tonight, I want you just to get up and come down here right now. No music, no nothing, just get up. And, and man, people were just flooding the aisles. So I went down because I was having all these doubts. So they ushered us to the backstage area. And those five guys in that band each split us up into five groups and one of them took each of our groups, and I was with the bass player, and they just sat us down, and they shared the gospel again, and they led us through a prayer to receive Christ if we wanted to receive Christ, and then they talked about discipleship and what it meant to follow Jesus. I mean, these guys were the real deal. They were part of the thing called Jesus People USA in Chicago and uh, Resurrection Band, later known as the Res Band. So I was sold. I was like, Jesus, <laughs> Christian rock and roll. I can't believe there's such a thing exists, you know? And so I began to listen to them and found out there were other Christian bands. So about a year later, I'm at Howard Payne University for a preview day because I'm considering going to school there. And our youth pastor had taken a group of us out there. So I had a friend who had a jam box that was about the size of the stage right here. Literally, it was like this huge JVC. It took about 60 D batteries to run it. And he would carry it up on his shoulder. And so we were in the basement of the dorm, and we're just there for a preview weekend. We don't know anybody at the school. And he's blasting Resurrection Band. And it sounds like anybody you'd hear on the radio, right? Except the words are Christian. And so we're just we're playing, we're playing foosball. We don't know anybody. And I'll never forget this guy's name was Bob. Bob walks up to us, and he says, turn that off. What do you guys think you're doing? Turn that off. And he goes over and he hits the stop button on the cassette. He goes, stop that. He goes, this is a Christian university. He goes, we don't need that devil music in here. And we were like, hang, hang, hang on, hang on, hang on a second, Bob. Look, this is Christian. There's no way that's Christian music. That's got a syncopated beat. There's no way that's Christian music. 
That's from the devil. That's what the African tribes went over and such and such. They used that same beat to conjure up spirits. That is from the devil. I mean, he's just going at us. And I'm like, no, stop. I've heard these guys share the gospel. I've heard them sit down and try to disciple people. These people are believers. Bob said, if you're listening to that music, there is no way you can be saved. I was like, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's the spirit of legalism, isn't it? The spirit of legalism says, my convictions have to become your convictions. And I'm putting this on you as your judge. And, and Paul says, don't let anyone act as your judge. Jesus is your judge. So don't worry about keeping the law. You don't have to keep the law to be saved. Now, there's some great things in the law. There's some great principles to live out in the law. But what Paul's saying is, you don't get saved because you keep the law. Peter said it in Acts. We couldn't keep it. Our ancestors haven't been able to keep it. The whole point of it was to show us that we needed the substance, which is Jesus. So he's saying, don't be intimidated by legalism. And look, there's times in church when whether it's music or it's the length of your hair or how many tattoos you have or how many piercings you have or some other thing where we tend to judge other people based on our convictions. And we put things on people that Jesus doesn't put on us. So what Paul's saying, and it's a great word for us to apply to our lives this morning, is that we should not be intimidated by legalism. So that's the first thing he says about this. Second thing he says in verse 18 and 19, because there's no substitute for Jesus, he says, don't be confused by mysticism. Now listen to what he says. Don't let anyone condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with the growth of God. He says here, don't let anyone condemn you. Literally, don't let anyone disqualify you. The word really means don't let anyone be your umpire. So an umpire calls balls and strikes. An umpire or referee would say, this is right, this is true. You know, the umpires, even in football games, the referees, they go back and look and they say, that was a catch. It wasn't a catch, you know. He had one foot down, he had two feet down. Whatever it might be, they're the ones that keep the rules. And, and so many times what happens in the church and what's happening in this church here is that people are having their own experiences and elevating those experiences above even the need for Jesus Christ. And saying, my experience is better than your experience with Jesus Christ. Look at what he says here. He talks about three things, specific things here. Ascetic practices. Well, asceticism basically is this idea of self-denial. That you deny yourself any indulgences, any pleasures in your life. That, that there's some form of spirituality, a higher plane of spirituality that you'll find when you deny yourself of all pleasure. Think of a monastery, of people who take themselves and, and move them, remove themselves from the world and from anything that might bring pleasure into their lives, and that there's some higher form of spirituality that comes about when you exercise that. And, and there's some mystery to that, right? Because you go, well, how does that work? How does that work? How do you find a higher plane of spirituality by denying yourself all these wonderful things in life? Well, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't be confused by mysticism. Don't allow other people's experiences, whether it's asceticism or something else, to confuse you. He mentions here also angel worship. This is common today. We know people that, 
have had experiences with angels or say they've had experiences with angels, some supernatural experience, some experience with spiritism, and they would, they would latch on to that and say that that's real, that's what really is real in life because I've experienced it. Their experience would outweigh even the truth of the gospel. And then he says, people who claim access to a visionary realm. Again, what does that really mean? That they've seen something that no one else can see. They have some secret vision, some personal revelation to them. That's dangerous, very dangerous. Most cults are started based on some individual's personal visionary experience. And from that, the misinterpretation of either Scripture or some new added Scripture that they claim is Scripture, and they say that this is the final revelation, right? This is the newest level of truth that you can attain to. And all those things sometimes, in our experience, can lead to confusion. A couple of years ago, I, I had a, a privilege of leading a man to Christ in our church. And um, he got baptized, and when he got baptized, he wanted all his family there because he said, most of my family doesn't know the Lord. So I'm going to invite all of them. I'm going to take them out to lunch afterwards and pay for their lunch. And uh, so they came, and the day I baptized them, we were up in the baptistry talking before, and he goes, yeah, they're out there, out there on the row three and four right there. And they kind of fill up the whole row, and I kind of looked around the corner. I was like, I see them. They're out there. Yeah, I don't know them. So, yeah, they're here. And that's great. He's like, I want you, when you baptize me, I want you to share the gospel, just briefly share the gospel. And I said, well, how about this? I'm going to preach today. So how about I share the gospel when I preach? Okay, that's great. He just said, I just want to be sure that my family Here's the gospel. He said, I'm, I've tried to explain it to some of them, and I'm not sure I'm doing that good of a job with it, but I really want them to hear the gospel. So after that, that day, obviously, I shared the gospel, as I tend to do, and I preach. And after that, he said, he texts me. He goes, man, thank you. Today was wonderful. He said, but my brother-in-law has a lot of questions that I can't answer. He said, could we get together and have lunch this week? And I said, sure. So we arranged to go to lunch, sat down with he and his brother-in-law, and uh, I didn't know his brother-in-law from anybody. And so I, I said, well, um, I said, you know, your brother-in-law here has received Christ as his Savior. I said, what are your spiritual beliefs? I just kind of started there. And boy, he had some spiritual beliefs. And he said, well, first of all, um, my grandmother believed the Bible. I'm not sure that I believe the Bible. I don't know that I have enough evidence to believe the Bible. But he said, let me tell you what's real for me. He said, when I was a child... My grandmother died when I was like eight or nine, and she's the one in our family that was sort of the only one that believed the Bible. She went to church. He said, but my mother would take me, after she died, my mother missed her so bad, my mother would take me to seances where the guy who was leading the seance, the medium, would conjure up her spirit. And he said, I've been to many seances where I've actually seen my grandmother. He goes, that's what's real for me. Now, what would you have said to him? Because he's completely sincere. He's had this mystical experience all of his childhood, teenage years, that to him, that's more real than the scripture. His mystical experience. That could be confusing for a Christian. People who claim some visionary realm, they've claimed some experience with angels or because of their ascetic practices, they've found or attained some higher level of spirituality. It can be confusing. What I said to him was, I said, it seems to me that you have decided you are the arbiter of truth in your life. I'm not meaning to offend you, but what you're saying to me is your truth, your experience has more, uh, uh, has more validity than the scripture. And he goes, that's right. And I said, you are so deceived. And I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but you are so deceived because your experience of perhaps seeing some spirit in the room that you think was your grandmother, for 
was probably just an angel of light sent to deceive you, to cause you to not trust in Christ, to not seek Christ, but to say this experience that I've had has more validity than Jesus Christ. Paul was saying to the church in Colossians, the Colossian church, he was saying, look, you guys don't be confused by other people's mystical experiences. You're going to always encounter people, whether it's New Age or, man, I've been on mission trips where I've talked to people and they have just the most bizarre beliefs. And we live in an era, let's face it, of relative truth where people's truth is their truth. Like you have your truth, I have my truth, everybody just leave each other alone, let's live it out, right? The problem with that is there is truth. And if there's truth, that means that other things are not true. (laughs) And so the word of God is the truth. Jesus is the truth. He said that about himself. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father unless he comes through me. And so because that's true, Paul's saying, look, there's no substitute for Jesus Christ, including other people's experiences that they may have that are somewhat mystical or whatever. Don't let those things confuse you. He says about those people, Paul does here, that they're inflated and unspiritual. And that's true. Because people who have their own experience that say they don't need Jesus, they have their own experience are basically elevating themselves above Jesus Christ, who the Bible says has authority over all. So they're elevating themselves. They're unspiritual. Their minds are unspiritual. And it says they've rejected Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body grows, he says. So he's saying don't be confused by mysticism. Don't be intimidated by legalism. And then last this morning, he says in verse 20 and 23, don't be deceived by moralism. This is what he says, since you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why would you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations to refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They're human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom and by, and by promoting self-made religion, false humility and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Paul asks a great question. He says, since you belong to Christ, who is the Lord of all creation, who is God in the form of man, he's your Lord, he leads your life, why then would you submit to the elements of this world, to the teaching from this world? Why would you submit to the truths of this world? Because you no longer belong to the world. You belong to Christ now. Well, the teaching, the elements of the world, basically come down to this idea of moralism. Moralism is the idea that I can be good enough on my own to escape hell. Now, if you ask people, are you good enough to go to heaven? They might say, well, not necessarily, but I'm not bad enough to go to hell. That is a very common idea. In fact, if you talk about hell with people at all, they'll sort of snicker at you like, you believe in hell? Hell, if there is such a place, it's for really, really bad people, right? I don't know anybody who deserves to go to hell. That's what they might tell you. Maybe Hitler, maybe somebody like that, maybe Putin, I don't know. But really, truthfully, I don't know anybody. All my friends, all my family, they're good people. I had a conversation just two days ago at Thanksgiving, three days ago, whatever it was. I went to some friend's house, and the man is uh, 81 years old, and his wife died last year, and so he's begun dating at 81. It's real, truly. And his family's very concerned about him because he has a lot of money and resources, and they're worried and concerned that these, these ladies that he's dating are really after his money. It's a legitimate concern. So his son-in-law and I are sitting on the couch during the Cowboy game, and we're talking to him, and I'm just trying to help his daughters who are 
just at their wits end trying to help their dad, you know, who doesn't really want their help. (laughs) And I said to him, I said, well, tell me about your girlfriend, you know, (laughs) your girlfriend. She's 75 years old and, you know, she uh, blah, blah, blah. He's telling me all these things. She likes my cars. He has hot rods. She likes my cars and all that stuff. I'm like, not hearing anything about the Lord in this, you know. And so I said, well, uh, I just was asking some questions, and son-in-law was asking some questions. And so it's like, well, tell me, is she a believer in Jesus Christ? His answer was, she goes to church. That's not what we asked, okay? So back up and try this again. Do you know what she believes in spiritually? What are her spiritual beliefs? I don't know. She's going to Sunday school with me. It's not what we asked, okay? So we just kept trying over and over again. And basically what he came down to is he said, she's a good person. Right? Have you, how many times have you heard somebody describe somebody that way? They're a good person. There are no such things. There are no such things. There are people who make good moral decisions sometimes. But the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no, none righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. So the reality is, yes, there are people who make worse decisions than other people. That's true. But the problem with moralism is it can be something that is so deceiving because people think, well, I'm not that bad of a person so I'm probably going to go to heaven because I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I haven't ever, and they usually say, I haven't killed anybody, right? And I haven't really, I'm not a criminal, and I'm responsible. I pay my bills on time. I take care of my family. So that ought to count for something with God, right? Moralism is deceiving because moralism is this idea that I can somehow be good enough on my own to not need Jesus, There's no substitute for Jesus. Even your own human goodness is not a substitute for Jesus Christ. Because we have all sinned. And there's no amount of goodness that can pay for and atone for your sin. And the great news is, you don't have to try to be good enough to atone for your sin. It's impossible. Jesus already did it. His death for you on the cross was an atonement. It was to put you at one with God again. It was to make you right with God as I said earlier, to exchange his righteousness for your unrighteousness, that you could receive his blessing while he receives the curse of your sin. So the Bible makes it clear. Paul says here that there are are people who will tell you that their life is basically defined by the don'ts. I don't do this, I don't do this, and I don't do this. He says here, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All those things refer to laws. You know, I'm not a bad person because I don't do these things. Still not enough, is it? There's no substitute for Jesus Christ. Paul says here that moralism's failure is that, first of all, it's temporal, not eternal. It's just temporary. Your goodness can't bring you into eternal life. It's human, not divine. It appears as wisdom, but really as foolishness. And then he says, this is really powerful. It has no value because it offers no real power against temptation and sin. It can't curb, he says, your sinful appetites. It can't do anything to help you with your real problem which all of us have the same problem. We've all sinned and we all need a Savior. So your goodness cannot do anything about that. So your morality should follow absolutely after you know Christ. It should change the way we live and the values that we have in our life. And certainly people who follow Jesus Christ are going to live out a very morally good life, but not to get saved, but because they've already been saved. So that's the way it works. If you try to get the horse in front of the cart, it doesn't work. Morality doesn't come before Jesus, it comes after Jesus. So the reality is this morning that if you're trusting in moralism, you're deceived. And the good news is you don't have to trust in moralism, you don't have to be intimidated by legalism, and you don't have to be confused by mysticism. 
You can put your faith in Jesus Christ, and because there's no substitute for him, and because he's the highest authority in all the universe, universes, then when you trust in him, you're trusting in the right person for salvation. So this morning, what I want to say to you is, whether you've ever done that or not, you could do that today. As I said a minute ago, Jesus said about himself that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father unless he comes through him, through me, Jesus says. So this morning, if you're willing to put your trust in Jesus Christ, not in your goodness, not in mysticism, not in legalism, but in him alone, then the Bible says that he will save you perfectly and completely and give you the gift of eternal life and cause his spirit to come and live inside of you and give you so many wonderful blessings to have the freedom from your sin that we sang about this morning. To to know all that, it happens through Jesus Christ. So this morning, I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads where you are. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a song. And this morning, if you'd like to pray to receive Christ, it's not really about saying a prayer. It's about calling on the name of the Lord, because Paul says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, This morning, if you're ready to do that, if you'd like to do that, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Someone gave me that opportunity when I was a teenager and said, you know what, Paul, you can start your life over today. Everything you've ever said, done, or thought that offends God can not only be forgiven, but it can be forgotten. And so this morning, the same thing is true for you. If you'd like to have Christ this morning, I'm just going to lead you in a simple time of calling on the name of the Lord. So you can just say this to God this morning. Dear Father in heaven, I want to be saved more than anything. And I'm not resting in my goodness or in the, trying to keep the law or some weird experience. I just want, I want you today, Jesus. I want to put my trust in you completely. I'm sorry for my sin. And I want you to come into my life and save me. Thank you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.